Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Anthony Chacha, he's going to be in the house. You know what he's going to be talking about? Drug pricing and the ripoff. But you know, uh, there's a hell of a lot we're covering on the program today. So stick around, a lot of stories, etc. But I want to put out a call out. We're going to be doing some important work here. We want to bring environmental stories. We want to make sure that the problems within our environmental system, the problems that you see out there, we want it reported. We want to know about it. So if you have any subject on the environment or any other subject, not necessarily the environment, please contact us at info at politicsdoneright.com. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright. On YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what? That nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Folks, you know what time it is. Let's get what? Busy. This is how Democrats should talk about Big uh, Build Back Better. In 2016, 55.6% of Montana voters voted for Donald Trump for president and then watched for four years as he repeatedly scheduled the infrastructure week that never came. Donald Trump never introduced an infrastructure bill. Donald Trump never got a vote in any congressional committee or in the House or in the Senate on infrastructure. And when he ran for re-election, Donald Trump got even more votes in Montana, 56.9% of the vote. Today, on NBC Montana Today, the state's Democratic Senator John Tester told the voters who voted against Joe Biden what they will be getting in the bipartisan Biden infrastructure bill that the president signed into law last week. 
that deals with infrastructure like roads and bridges and water systems and electrical transmission and broadband. It's a big bill. It's the biggest investment in infrastructure ever in this country. And uh, it's going to do some great things for Montana. It's going to help us push our economy forward and uh, reduce the cost of doing business. So it, it's, a, it's a very good bill. It was uh, I helped negotiate it over eight months, and it's good to see it get signed into law. Now we'll be looking forward to the projects when they hit the ground here yeah. in Montana. Now, that is a senator in a red state that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, not at all scared to come out and said, I help this bill that's going to help us all. And he's already come out and stated with the Build, uh, build Back Better bill that he also is in support of those provisions, including those that have things like family leave, etc. He knows that that is what people want. And if he can explain it in his place, he would. Recently, I've been talking a whole lot about the media misleading. And when you catch it in real time, in other words, we, we, we've showed Stephanie Rule correcting the media, if she's a part of. We have saw, saw the president correcting the media where, uh, after the fact, where, you know, they're, they're not empty shelves that he's talking about. But when it is done in real time, it is even sweeter. It is sweeter. I want you to see what this pollster, this person, did to Chuck Todd as he tried to spin a false narrative. I want you to listen in detail. The guy was very magnanimous in the way he did it, but he didn't let the false narrative from Chuck Todd go unanswered. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. At the beginning of this survey, 20, 20, 21 years ago, um, George W. Bush won as many young voters as Al Gore. Right. The, overall, the overall take I have on this poll is voters under 30 don't look like they have a lot of reasons to show up to the polls right now. Is that what you see? Actually, thankfully not. They've got more reasons to show up the polls than ever. And um, we, we saw that, um, that, as I said, turnout in 2018 for midterm was that there was a record highs. And we're tracking actually uh, the same number at this stage of this midterm election. So, so the I depression isn't a, impacting <laughs> that. So the sometimes well, you worry about that. The depression could impact yeah. the interest in the election or people just sort of giving up hope. Ah, forget it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it could. But I think that's what previous generations did, Chuck. It was, frankly, the movement around Parkland and that depression and fear that turned into fight and made them stronger. And there was actually a correlation in our 2018 polling. The more depressed you were, the more likely you were to vote in those midterms. So I listen, I'm an optimist by journal. I spent so much time around young people. I have to be. Um, But um, I still think I still think that we are on track for a significant turnout. But listen, we can't take it for granted. We cannot take it for granted. We need to find ways to kind of communicate with them. But this is to me the canary in the coal mine here. And that, I think, was the most important point. Now, you you see, uh, the guy came back very well. Oh, no, no, no. They actually have a lot more to participate. And that's what they're feeling right now. And by the way, Chuck, 
You know, back in 2018, they were the more depressed they were, the more they came to vote because they they they, they know they needed to cure their depression, Chuck. No, Chuck, we're not going to allow you to set the narrative of the corporate structure that fears the millennials, that fears that this big group that understands they've been pilfered for all these years, that understand that the parasites can no longer be parasitic or we will no longer allow the parasites to be parasitic. No, Chuck. We're not going to allow you to somehow depress them into not voting. In fact, Chuck, the more they're depressed, the more they will come out to vote because they want the antidote to that depression. You see what I'm saying? Caught in real time trying to change the real narrative just like they did with the empty shelves, just like they did with the price of gasoline. It's coming down. It's not reported. The shelves are filled. It's not reported. But if they're empty, you blast it all over. But if the gas prices goes up, it's all over. Let's understand the concept. Let's make sure independent media is what we actually work for, folks, because that is what happens when you allow the corporate media's only voice to be the voice. Listen to Joe Biden handle the media at the same time that he defends his Build Back Better. Check this out. Mr. President, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm so honored to be here to talk about an issue that is deeply personal to me, addressing the high cost of insulin and to tell my story. Imagine every day having to ask questions like, should I pay my rent or should I risk death by foregoing my medication? Should I buy groceries or my insulin and other necessary supplies related to diabetes? I had to make this choice relentlessly without relief every day. In 2012, at the age of 21, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Due to unforeseen circumstances, there came a time where I could no longer afford my insulin. I was forced to ration my supply of drug that is as vital to me as water. I felt myself growing weaker and weaker each day. I could actually feel myself slowly dying. One day I was rushed to the hospital where they told me I was in diabetic ketoacidosis, a life-threatening and potentially deadly complication of my illness. I slipped into a diabetic coma and I could have died. This was a terrifying incident. I was ashamed that I couldn't afford my life-saving medication. I didn't want to ask for help. I shouldn't have to ask for help. Insulin and healthcare should be affordable. Ever since my diagnosis, the cost of my diabetic medicine has dictated everything from what kind of job I can take whether I can set aside some money for, for savings. Thankfully, I am now able to afford my insulin through my employer benefits. I'm fortunate, but I know there are thousands of people facing the struggle. The reality is that one in four patients with diabetes has had to ration insulin due to high drug pricing. President Biden gets it. He has a plan to not only save me and millions of people like me money, but also to give us the certainty, the ability to control our health without our health controlling us. For me, 
President Biden's Build Back Better Act would mean peace of mind. I know how fast our circumstances in life can change in addition to my illness. I am plagued with the fear that I may not be able to afford my insulin again. I want to see a future where young people like me don't have our lives revolve around our prescription drugs and we don't have to make career and life choices around insurance benefits. That's why I'm so grateful for President Biden's leadership on tackling the high costs of prescription drugs, particularly insulin. And now it's my honor to introduce my new friend, President Joe Biden. Aisha, thank you very much. <clears throat> Your story is important and uh, for everyone to hear. And thank God you're with us today. Today, I'd like to talk about how we're going to help millions of Americans protect and preserve their health and live with the dignity of knowing that they can care for themselves and their loved ones, all by making the cost of prescription drugs much more reasonable. At the outset, I want to be clear. We acknowledge the groundbreaking, life-saving work that many pharmaceutical companies are doing. Look no further than the vaccines and the treatments they're manufacturing and delivering that are helping fight this pandemic. Our miraculous therapies have, uh, in some cases, turned diseases that were once considered death sentences into treatable conditions. But we can make a distinction between developing those breakthroughs and jacking up prices on a range of medicines which have been on the market for years without making a substantial or substantive change in the, in the medication itself, the medicine itself. Here in America, it will not surprise you to know that we pay the highest prescription drug prices of any developed nation in the world. Let me say that again. We pay the highest, highest prescription drug prices of any developed nation in the world. That may surprise you. What may surprise you is we pay about two to three times what other countries pay for the same drug. An example, one anti-cancer drug costs $14,000 in the United States. That same exact drug by the same manufacturer costs $6,000 in France. Today, one in four Americans who take prescription drugs struggle to afford them. <clears throat> nearly 30%, nearly 30% of these, these patients have skipped doses of essential drugs that they have to take. Others have simply not fulfilled the, fulfilled the prescription, tried to use over-the-counter drug and cut pills in half or because they can't afford the cost of the prescription. You know, even if you think this doesn't affect you, it does. Everyone has less money in their pockets because high drug costs make health insurance more expensive for everyone. There aren't a lot of things that almost every American agree, can agree on. But I think it's safe to say that all of us, all of us, whatever our background, our age, where we live, we can agree the prescription drugs are outrageously expensive in this country. Doesn't need to be that way. Under my Build Back Better bill, there will be that which is passed the House of Representatives. It won't be the same way. One of the most egregious examples of what's happening with drug prices regarding the treatment of diabetes and the cost of insulin a drug that people with type 1 diabetes need to take throughout their lives to control their diabetes and stay alive. It's almost exactly 100 years ago that a 14-year-old boy in Canada dying of diabetes became the first person to receive an injection of insulin. 
Today, one bottle of this life-saving liquid costs less than $10 to manufacture. But to create, but in certain types of insulin, prices increase by 15% or more each year for the past decade. Depending on the nature of someone's type 1 diabetes, the average sticker price for a month's supply of insulin is about $375. But some people, it can be as high as $1,000 a month because they need to take more. I just met with two lovely women we see in front of me today here. And uh, Sarah Skipper uh, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 5. She has a sister, Shelby, who was diagnosed at age 8. She told me that affording insulin has been the challenge of her and her family's entire life. Sometimes she and her sister rationed doses. In 2018, Sarah was no longer covered by her parents' policy, although she was working two jobs. She hadn't met the, her health care plan's deductible. And insulin was about $1,000 a month supply for her. So she started sharing her sister's insulin from the same vial. At one point, because Shelby thought Sarah had taken her dose, that Shelby cut a dose in half because the bottle was sitting there and it looked like it was half empty. Is that correct? And at that time, she thought, well, I guess what? I guess I ha- there's, she hadn't taken it yet. Shelby had been hospitalized as a consequence for four days, working two jobs, sharing insulin from the same vial in America. Shame on us as a nation. We can't do better than this. Sarah's about to start a new job and doesn't yet know what the insulin will cost. Sarah said, I wish I could, this is a quote, I wish I could make a decision that didn't include diabetes. She shouldn't have to ask such a question. You know, I think about what just happened with Aisha, who's diagnosed with diabetes three days before her 21st birthday, having to choose between rent and groceries and medication. Quote, relentlessly, without relief every day, was your quote to me. Having to ration or supply... And feeling herself, as she says, slowly dying, she ended up in a coma. Think about that. The difference between nearly dying and thriving is the cost of one drug. Sarah and Aisha are far, far from being alone. It's estimated that 34 million Americans, 10% of the population, have diabetes, including more than 1.5 million who have type 1 diabetes, requiring daily doses of incidence in varying quantities. Remember all this stress, hardship, suffering, and sacrifice is due to a drug that costs just a few bucks to make. One study found that Americans pay 10 times as much as other countries for insulin. These price increases are about companies looking to maximize profits and nobody standing up for the patients. Nobody with the power to do something about it. It's enough, enough. Nobody has held the manufacturers, the manufacturers accountable until now. My Build Back Better bill takes three key steps to lower the cost for families dealing with diabetes. First, we're going to cap cost sharing of for insulin at $35 per month. That means you can't get charged more than 35 bucks at a pharmacy counter for your insulin. It's, that's across the board. Whether you get health insurance through your private policy, 
the Affordable Care Act marketplace, or through Medicaid. Nobody is going to pay more than $35 for each month for insulin. Second, for people who don't have health insurance, we're helping you get insurance. That way, people with diabetes can get protected with that $35 copay cap. People who are uninsured today can visit healthcare.gov to check out the options. In many cases, people can get a full health care plan, including coverage for insulin and other prescription drugs, doctor visits, and hospitalizations for less than $10 a month if you sign up for the plan. If you live in a state that has refused to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, my Build Back Better bill is going to fix that as well. These changes are going to ensure access to affordable coverage for millions more Americans and help more people with diabetes get coverage they desperately need. Third, we're going to end the days when drug companies could increase their prices with no oversight and no accountability. Going forward, drug companies that increase their prices faster than inflation are going to face a steep excise tax. In other words, if you're saying to drug, we're saying to drug companies, if you're finally doing it because, uh, because to be accountable when your prices to the American people go up, you're going to be accountable. This is important, not only from a health standpoint, from the standpoint of personal dignity. Imagine if you're a parent, one of the roughly 200,000 young people in this country that suffer from type 1 diabetes. Imagine if you can't afford their insulin. It's not only a risk to your child's life, it deprives you of your dignity. Just imagine, as a parent, having a child with type 1 diabetes and not a damn thing you can do about making sure they have it. If sold what you can sell, you don't have the money to get it done. Well, my plan, my plan addresses an additional fear patients face, which is that when their children are starting their careers and are no longer eligible in their parents' health care plan, they'll be able to get insulin they need. Outrageous cost affecting everyone across the board, spending every kind of condition disease, I remember what it was like when my mom, for my mom, when she got older and moved in with us. Her prescription drugs were thousands of dollars on a monthly basis. Fortunately, I had three other siblings, and we collectively had the means to chip in so she didn't have to exhaust all of her savings and sell whatever she had left to make sure she could get her drug costs covered. So I'm committed. I'm committed to using every tool I have to lower prescription drug costs for Americans, consistent with the drug companies getting a fair return on their investment. To really solve this problem, we need the Senate to follow the House of Representatives' lead and pass my Build Back Better bill. In addition to the specific progress that the Build Back Better bill is going to make for families facing diabetes, it will also take the additional step of lowering drug costs for people on Medicare. Right now, the only thing Medicare is not allowed to negotiate, they can negotiate the cost of doctor's visits, hospitalization, all the rest. The one thing they can't, as a matter of law, they're not allowed to negotiate the price for prescription drugs. For everything else, doctor's visits, crutches, they can negotiate. My plan gets rid of that prohibition. What I'm proposing is that we negotiate a fair price one that reflects the cost of research and development and need for significant progress, Pro- excuse me, need for significant profit. But that is still affordable to consumers. 
Right now, drug companies will set the price at whatever market will bear. My plan also caps the amount that seniors on Medicare have to spend on prescription drugs each year to no more than $2,000 per year, with Medicaid and drug companies picking up the rest of the cost. And again, our plan says that any drug company can only raise prices based on the rate of inflation and caps insulin cost sharing at $35 a month. So let me close with this. I've long said healthcare should be a right, not a privilege in this country. And the women I've met with today, and millions like them, are the reason why. People for whom the cost of one drug is the difference between hope and fear, life and death, dignity and dependence. We're closer than ever to passing my Build Back Better bill and providing people suffering from diabetes and so many other diseases the medicines they need and the dignity they deserve to be able to afford them. This is not a partisan issue. Diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, so many other diseases, they don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. It's, it's, not whether, it's not about whether or not your loved ones can afford a prescription drug you need. So we need Congress to finish the job, to come together and make the difference in people's lives. And as uh, my grandpa used to say, with the grace of God and the goodwill of the neighbors, we're going to get this done. So you don't have to worry every single day about what you can be able to do. God bless you all and God protect our troops. Thank you so much. Right now, the big issue is on abortion. It's on a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to control her own body. We can talk and talk and talk and talk. But Lawrence O'Donnell said something that I didn't quite know yesterday. We got a very conservative Supreme Court and the people who are going to be screwed the most by this conservative court are people in red states. The people who claim they wanted that, that Supreme Court are the ones that are going to pay the price, the results of having that conservative Supreme Court. Check this out. The Republican side of the argument in the Supreme Court did not use the word liberty. The opponents of abortion on the Supreme Court today argued that because the word abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution, the Supreme Court should have no role in establishing abortion laws. That should be left entirely to the states. To be clear, you're not arguing that the court somehow has the authority to itself uh, prohibit abortion or that this court has the authority to order the states to prohibit abortion, as I understand it, correct? Correct, Your Honor. As I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution is silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that accurate? Right. That provoked Senator Elizabeth Warren today to say that Congress should pass a law establishing the principles of Roe versus Wade as the law of the land in statute. Senator Warren, a former Harvard Law professor, will join us in our discussion of this case tonight. If any combination of the three Supreme Court justices appointed by the two presidents Bush and the three Supreme Court justices appointed by Donald Trump decide to overturn Roe versus Wade and make each state the final authority on abortion law, nothing will actually change. 
for most women in America, because the populations of the states that will not restrict abortion in any way are significantly larger than the populations of the states that might restrict or ban access to abortion. At this point in our history, Roe versus Wade is simply protecting the women in very Republican states, protecting their liberty. And in truth, Roe versus Wade is really only protecting the women in those states who cannot afford to travel to New York or California or Illinois or one of the many other states that will always safely and responsibly provide abortion services. No one rich in Mississippi will be affected by any change in this law. No Republican woman, rich woman in Mississippi, not one Republican rich daughter in Mississippi would ever be affected by the change in the law that the state of Mississippi is asking the court to approve. It would just be economically disadvantaged women in Mississippi who would then find themselves struggling to somehow, somehow come up with the money to be able to travel to another state in the pursuit of liberty. Justice Sonia Sotomayor made the point about how many Supreme Court justices, including Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices, have supported Roe versus Wade over decades and what it will mean if the current Republican Supreme Court justices decide to overturn it. The right of a woman to choose the right of, to control her own body has been clearly set for uh, since Casey and never challenged. You want us to reject that line of viability and adopt something different. Fifteen justices over um, 50 years have, or I should say 30 since Casey, have reaffirmed that basic viability line. Four have said no, two of them members of this court, but 15 justices have said yes, of varying political backgrounds. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? We, you know, it is amazing. Uh, I mean, she hits the nail on the head. The stench is, but uh, the, the stench has been there. The stench has been there for since Citizens United, since McCutcheon, since all those rulings. The stench has been there. It's been a corporate-owned Supreme Court. And when you talk about a conservative Supreme Court, uh, solving issues like gender issues and childbirth issues and abortion issues for the Supreme Court. It's just, eh, 
you know, we'll just talk about it. Give them a bone. Uh, the debate isn't about killing a baby. The debate isn't about any of that because the debate is whether we can tell a woman. Let, let's be clear here. From a from a just a scientific point of view, a child in the womb of a woman, and this not I, I, it. Look, I have no no position that I should viably take with respect to what a woman thinks, what she does to her body, etc. But think about this. You are forcing a woman to... A, 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 a fetus is a parasite, right? It, it 100% depends on taking the energy of the mother. Should a woman decide that she doesn't want to do that, that has got to be her choice. Now, folks like to talk about you're, you kill a fetus, you're killing a baby. The truth of the matter is women naturally abort fetuses uh, and blastocysts and all these things throughout their pregnancy, period. None of us have the education. None of us has the knowledge to come out here and say that a fetus is a living human being, okay? That's number one. Now, if you want to believe that, if you want to believe that a fetus is a human being, by all means, it's a free country. Believe that. Force your wife, whether she wants to or not, if she accidentally gets pregnant, to carry that baby. Force the people under your control, which should be no, none, but, you know, we know the, where the patriarchy lives. Have you, you, you worry about them and your religious entity or wherever you are. But do not impose that economic burden on a woman. And you know what is so ironic more than anything else? All these people that are trying to protect a fetus, when it is time to invest money in the living, when it is time to invest money in those who are already born and need to have access to success, they're never there. They are absolutely never there. They don't want government to do anything positive, but they want government to tell a woman, I will tell you what you can do with your body. You know what I bet? If they said to men, in other words, we cut your a piece of your thing off if you impregnate a woman, I bet if you said that, the laws would change. I bet if men could carry babies and it affected their careers, I bet they'll find some other way to talk about it. But you see, in a patriarchal society, where everything is governed by the penis, until we extricate that false patriarchy out of it, We'll continue to get those things. You know, from, I tell you, there's one thing. I grew up a chauvinist. I grew up a sexist. I grew up all those things. But you know what was interesting? Having a daughter. Because I remember telling her when she was young, go to that pastor and ask that pastor, why can't women be pastors too? In her church, the women did most of the work, yet all the men were deacons and, and sporting there, waiting for the women to do things, right? Well, you know, I asked the pastor that. Luckily, they both, both my wife and my daughter remained in that church. And that is one of the, I'm not a church going guy, but it's a church I love. And I love the people in that church. And the reason I love the people in that church, my wife is a deacon in that church. 
Women are deacons in that church. Women are preachers in that church. Women are doing everything men do in that church. Equity. Equity. But you know what? When it comes to when it comes to anything else, we know what it's all about. We actually know what it's all about. Something telling happened today. You know, um, the president went on and he spoke about the great employment numbers. I mean, the economists wanted more, but we know that over the last several months, the employment uh, numbers have been coming in sort of very low and then they've been sky high a few months after the adjustments are made. But anyhow, uh, he came and he spoke and he spoke also about the supply chain. There are 40 percent less uh, containers in uh, on the docks um, He's where he was able to help facilitate putting these private sector companies together so that things would work more efficiently. The administration came together and did that. In other words, the government came to bail out the private sector once again. But it's interesting because uh, with all the bailout that the government has been doing for the private sector and getting products to market, etc., the media is still showing empty shelves in their news reports, right? It's like if they did the news reports a long time ago and they refuse to show America what's really going on because it doesn't fit the narrative. Well, th- today, in, the pre- in a previous video that I did with the president, he went ahead and he called them out. He said, you know, I just spoke to all these CEOs and all of them are telling me the shelves are full. And I then see a report a few days after, or a few when I'm done, that the shelves are empty. Maybe you guys need to go back and do your job. And to Stephanie Rule from MSNBC, she came out and she told the truth. She called her own people out. I want you to take a look at this and then we'll take it smurly on the other side. Here's the thing. The president is certainly underplaying um, this jobs report. But what's really important to remember for the last few months, Michael noted it, the jobs report numbers keep getting revised up over the last few months because the way we're getting this information is obviously getting more difficult during COVID. But look at the household survey. You mentioned it at the top. We're seeing unemployment tick down and we've got the highest number of Americans back on the job since pre-pandemic. To say that the jobs picture isn't good in America right now is is absolutely false. But I credit the president in terms of messaging. He really took a swipe at the media and he had a right to talking about supply chain issues. We still have supply chain delays. Remember, the U.S. government cannot control all of the supply chain. It's global. But things are improving. In the last week alone, we heard from the Target CEO saying their inventory is up 18 percent. Walmart inventory is up 11 and a half percent. I spoke to the Mattel CEO, said shelves are full and we're ready for the holidays. And the president said he know he told this to the American people and then he turned on the news and what is he seeing? Empty shelves. That's really not the picture. Things are more expensive. It's difficult. But this whole argument that Santa isn't going to be here for Christmas isn't true. And to the gas prices point, he also has a point. Reporters were lined up at gas station after gas station, waving their hands about gas prices. And you're hard pressed to find many reporters talking about gas prices dropping. But they are. Amazing. The price of gas has started falling. Are they out there saying, oh, finally, some of the work that the administration, along with the private sector, is doing is causing the price of... No, they have a vested interest in folks thinking we are in some sort of dire straits that this this particular president can't get the job done. 
Maybe they should have remembered to do that with Donald Trump so that we would not have had an election that was so close that, that, that some, peop- some Congress people won that shouldn't have won. Again, the media can set a narrative. If the media sets a bad, a false, a misleading narrative, Americans make the wrong choices. And that is the reason why we need independent media not tied to the corporate structure. Because the corporations have a vested interest in an otherwise, in a president that would otherwise be popular based on the policies he supports. They don't want that because they want those policies attenuated because they know what those policies mean. Less humongous, uh, very evil type profits that they can no longer get if they have to pay their fair share, if they can no longer be the parasites to the average American citizen that many of them are. Today we have a special guest. We know what's going on in the pharmaceutical industry. We know what's going on in the healthcare industry in this country. And that's why we bring you some of these very intriguing guests who know what's going on within the system. Antonio Chacha, president of Three Axis Advisors. He led government affairs for the Ohio Pharmacists Association, a trade organization with a strong track record of advocating for drug price and transparency. Antonio has since spent years studying the pharmacy uh, marketplace, publishing several analyses on the drug pricing code and pulling the rug out of what he believes is one of the most dysfunctional marketplaces in the world. He doesn't only believe that. Those listeners of Politics No Right know that that is a statement of fact. El Senor Antonio Chacha, welcome to Politics Done Right. Hey, great to be with you today. Look, first of all, thank you for being here. We have a whole lot to talk about in a, in a fixed amount of time. So let's go ahead and get busy on this. You were part of a new report, the PBM Accountability Project, that shed quite a bit of light on issues related to the drug industry. Tell me, first of all, what's the genesis of that particular study? So as we know, in the prescription drug world, it, things are really expensive and they're very complex. And to boil it down, Drug makers are for-profit companies. They would love to charge as much as they could get away with. They sell drugs to drug wholesalers who would love to charge as much as the market would allow them to get away with. And they sell to pharmacies who ultimately have the interest in doing the exact same. The question then is, who's working on our behalf as consumers? And there are companies known as pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs that act as the middleman between the employer, the plan sponsor, or the health insurer ultimately working on our behalf to negotiate discounts off of the uh, members of the drug supply chain. However, our research has shown, and not just our research, but more and more research uh, done by others, is showing that PBMs who were once hired to make things cheaper have actually over time started making more and more money to the point where they're actually larger than the drug makers and pharmacies themselves at this point. I want to stop you right there because I want to come with a very important question. Are PBMs private private companies, for-profit companies? What are they? Yes, pharmacy benefit managers are for-profit. The largest ones are publicly traded and all reside on the Fortune 15 list. Stop, so please. we're talking about some of the largest companies in the world. Thank you. Now, whose idea was it to believe that having a private company in as an intermediary between the pharmacist who tries to maximize profits and the drug uh, and the uh, the drug companies, the drug companies who want to maximize profit, and pharmacists who themselves are for profit, that somehow that wasn't just going to be an additional cost. Whose great idea was that? <laughs> I, I think it's an idea that evolved over time. Because let's be let's be fair, 
PBMs were architected to truly do something that they needed to do, which was make sure that they were finding balance between what an acceptable price on a pharmaceutical was, and then to also just facilitate something as simple as processing the claim itself. But over time, they realized that, hey, there's a lot of opportunity here to buy something at a, ve a very cheap price and sell it at a very high, at a very high price without the end payer having enough sophistication to know that perhaps there's any grand amount of delta growing in the middle. And so really it's something that evolved rather than was somebody's harebrained idea in the first place. Uh, but I mean, um, you, you are, you've, been, uh, you've been in this economic system for a very long time, haven't you been? Absolutely, born and raised in a pharmacy household. Uh, it's a mess. I, but again, my question to you is, I, I, and, I, and I, I have to repeat it because I think the answer is so simple. Why would anybody have believed that somehow that concept would have been successful? I think it's a very fair question. I think it's an existential question for the PBM industry as a whole. There are some things that can be done to at least try and calibrate their for-profit nature, right? There are things like fiduciary obligations that a lot of companies have that have to that require them to act in the best interest of, of their clients or their patients in this, in this regard. But none of those requirements exist, which means that PBMs today are free to do as they please. And as we've shown, they do do as they please at great expense to consumers, not all the time, but often. Let me ask you again, do we need them? I don't believe we need PBMs as standalone entities. But I do believe that we need the functionality that they provide. For example, many drugs are too expensive or don't have tremendous value. And so PBMs at an ideal level should act as somebody who's knowledge enough and educated enough on pharmaceuticals to say, A, whether or not a drug is worth covering for a health plan in the first place, and B, what a fair price for that pharmaceutical is when they purchase it either from the drug maker or from the pharmacy. Those are good things to have as necessary friction in the marketplace if you are going to have a market-based system. And so the question then is, is when do their incentives run awry to the point where they start compromising that necessary friction and instead pouring more gasoline on the fire that they were hired to control in the first place? Now, I, I am, you know, I, I may be lost completely. <laughs> Because I am still, you know, I've asked you twice already, and I, I, I know you're answering it properly within the context of what exists today. What I'm trying to gather in when, when we're talking about these particular issues and fixing these particular issues, whether we need to go to the core of these issues, do we need them? I, you, you gave, you gave a, an answer that I think is a very good answer. In other words, we have to determine if, um, you know, what's a good price point for a product. In healthcare, I don't know what the good <laughs> price point of a product is because, again, most of these darn products were developed by the taxpayers in the first place. Initially, the initial, the initial research, the initial thing that said this may be viable, wasn't it? Wasn't the drug company saying, um, "Let's do these experiments on faith"? It was universities and research labs by the NIH that are doing these things. You, you, gave a, you gave a statement of what the market will bear. What does having what the market will bear have anything to do with what drug prices should be? 
I think it's a fair. I think it's a very fair question, right? Uh, at the end of the day, in the U.S. system, we're very unique in this regard. We want a system that incents drug makers through profits to bring new innovative products to market. Now, whether or not we get truly innovative products, we'll leave that off to the side. But that's the system that we have. That we want drug makers to have adequate profit incentive so that they invest in more research and development, sometimes with government help, sometimes predominantly with government help, to keep the churn of new medicines coming so that maybe they'll stay ahead of disease or do a better job of treating disease. Now, whether we get fair bang for that buck is a totally another question, but that's the system that we have today. I want to ask you that question because you're the expert here. You're the one telling me what you have found. Mr. Chacha, is that uh, have we been getting a good bang for the buck or not only that, are drug companies giving us the bang for the buck or are we just commodities used to make a profit for somebody? So, unfortunately, the, and this is not to be cagey, right, but PBMs were brought in to find that necessary balance. And so we've entrusted them as a market force to find that intermediary space to say, look, you know, if drug maker A wants to charge $100 for something that really has a value of 50 the PBM's job was to come in and say, we're only going to pay 50 for that drug or we're not going to cover it. Instead, what the PBM has done is they said, look, we're happy to cover your drug as long as you drug maker give us a big rebate in exchange for covering it in the first place. So what you have is, look, we could argue whether or not a market-based system will ever give us what we deserve, all right, as consumers. But if we are going to have a market-based system, then you need that sort of accountability that a PBM or something else could provide. Unfortunately, that we don't have that today. They've been compromised. And so we're stuck with a system that is just in an autopilot off of a cliff. Why I wanted you on this show is because that report intrigued me. Okay, I didn't read the report. I'll be honest. I read the synopsis of the report, but it, it, it justifies or it qualifies everything that we talk about on Politics Done Right. But you're the one who did the research. You're the one who found the truth. You're the one who came out with the same conclusions that some uh, 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 somebody like a, a political activists like myself would always have always known. Now, my question to you as a person who has done the research, mm -hmm. uh, shouldn't we really do away with uh, the way our drugs are partitioned to the, within our system altogether and, and, and look at it at a more, uh, a less for-profit based system and one that actually values humanity a bit more? So I think that there are, and I, I'm, I'm not an economist, I mm -hmm. study drug prices, I am a nerd. Uh, and I think that there are very, there are competing opinions on what a, let's say, a government-run drug distribution system would incent from an innovation perspective. Whether we like it or not, a tremendous amount of the research and innovation in the pharmaceutical world comes from inv American investment, okay? And so we do get a lot more new products, whether, again, they have great value propositions. I, I, want, I want to stop you there because I, I, I don't want us to tell my audience something that isn't that is a pharmaceutical statement and not a statement in fact. And here's here's my question to qualify what you're saying. And I'd like 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 to hear your, your statement on this. And that is specifically you said we privately invest a lot. Yeah. Let's look at Claritin Clarinex. Two drugs. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Claritin, Clarinex. That was a, a large investment. Our, 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 our pharmaceutical companies spend a lot more on marketing than they do on research and development. And a lot of research and development come by way of NIH type grants, whether 
whether immediately obvious or somewhat, somewhat obvious when the pharmaceuticals investment is purchasing a professor at a university. That's it. My question again, should we give pharmaceuticals that statement of fact? I mean, I'm an engineer by training, all right? That's what I am by training, an engineer. I didn't need somebody to give me $100,000 to innovate. The people within the pharmaceutical companies, the engineers, the scientists, they're not the ones that partake of these great profits. So where do we come across saying that somehow innovation is relative to profits when the innovators themselves pretty much work at a fixed cost? I think that's a fair question. I, I have to concede I'm out of my lane because I'm not an economist. I don't understand what that lack of incentive would do to the drip of innovation. Incentive right? for whom? Incentive for whom? For the for the uh, drug makers themselves, for because those they're not the ones that invent, makers. right? The ones that invent are not the 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 money guys. I don't know enough about the research side of things, right? Okay. So the actual researchers, fair, of fair scientists. enough. I don't know what drives fair drives enough. Anything. Fair enough. Great, but again, you, I I think your research on that the paper that you did was conclusive, important. And not only that, I think it, 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 it is something that we need to get out there. Tell us a little bit about your company, because I was intrigued by, the, by, by what, what, what you do. So I, I study drug prices every day. Uh, <laughs> probably why I'm not good at studying markets. Uh, but we look at what's happening in the marketplace, how prices change day to day. What happens when a drug goes from brand to generic? What happens when more generic manufacturers enter? And what happens to price when competition hits that generic marketplace. So one of the things, and the whole reason we got into this was in my home state of Ohio, we ran into a problem when I was working with the pharmacist association there, the pharmacists were complaining they weren't getting paid enough on prescriptions. Now, whether they were right or wrong, I went back to state officials and said, hey, you got these big cuts happening at the pharmacy level. PBMs are paying pharmacies less and less for the drugs. Did I miss something? Are you saving a bunch of money now? And they said, no, we're spending more on pharmaceuticals than we ever have. So to me, that disconnect didn't make any sense. How could you cut pharmacy providers and then not see the savings on the other end? Well, we ended up looking at CMS publicly available data to see what the state of Ohio with Medicaid was being charged on every single prescription drug on a quarter by quarter basis. And what we found was that over time, there was a growing gap between what pharmacies were paid and what the state was being charged. PBMs were taking advantage of the opportunity to slap hidden markups over top of those medications and not disclosing them back to state officials. When state officials finally opened the books, they found that $244 million in what we call spread pricing was being layered on the top. Now, again, without having a tremendous sophistication on drug pricing at the time, that was beyond me because everybody complains about drug prices, but how could the payers of healthcare, a state Medicaid program, not know about $244 million of just hidden markups, which taught me that we all complain about drug prices, but we have a very small understanding of how the sausage is made. And so we started doing what we do to expose what that sausage making process looks like. Mr. Chacha, let me just tell you, you are a very important, your, your research is a very important portion 
of this entire medical fraud that we have in this uh, in this country. Now, I know you don't refer to it that way. You refer to it simply on mathematical and technical basis, basis. and I think that is important to solve an interim problem. I think the problem is a lot deeper and hope that studies like what you have done and studies by others will prove the, in, in my humble opinion, the fraud that our, not, not only our pharmaceutical system, but our entire medical system is uh, compared to the rest of the world. It has nothing to do with innovation. Scientists like my, uh, scientists and engineers like myself, we don't require the kind of funding that, uh, or the kind of money and profit that's in the system. We never see it, in fact. We never do. Um, but I want to thank you for, first of all, for what you do. Secondly, for coming here on Politics Done Right to expose it. But I always have a last question for everybody, and it's a free-for-all, free to say whatever the hell you want to say. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? I thought you asked really good questions, to be honest with you. What I, what I would preach, though, is a greater sophistication on how drug pricing works. To your point, whether you think that this system needs a complete overhaul or you think we need an entirely different you know, marketplace dynamic within healthcare, not just pharmaceuticals, to me, we deserve to know how our money is being spent on pharmaceuticals. You know, you walk into a CVS pharmacy and buy uh, an M&M's, you're going to get a receipt that's you know, a, a 10 feet long. Yet when you buy drugs from the PBM that owns CVS Pharmacy, they won't tell you how, how they spent the money. And that's true across the drug channel. It's a lot of money that we spend on pharmaceuticals in the United States. We deserve an itemized receipt so we could better understand how to better calibrate that marketplace. Or in your instance, maybe make a decision to do away with it altogether. Antonio Chacha, president of Three Axis Advisor. It really was my pleasure to speak to you. And I learned a lot from speaking to you based on your research. So thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Remember, send your request at info at politicsdoneright.com. Info at politicsdoneright.com. That's it, folks. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program.